0: Michelle Hecken took her language skills and translated them into an amazing success story. Pardon the pun. Help for Translations was started in 1994, and it quickly blossomed into one of the first translation businesses operating between German and Canadian companies. Quite a niche. After carving out a reputation in the legal industry, the business was built on the back of quality work and regular referrals. But, like many entrepreneurs in the professional services game, Michelle hit a point of extreme burnout and was forced to reconsider her involvement in the business. Fortunately, Michelle had made enough of an impact to attract some real interest in her business, and she eventually sold for a tidy eight figure sum. Now, an author and certified coach, Michelle dedicates her time to helping entrepreneurs stop feeling trapped within their business. Michelle talks about knowing when is the right time to sell, even if the business is your passion, and provides her perspective on how to handle an exit successfully. This is Michelle Hecken. Hey Michelle, welcome to the show.
1: Hi Simon. Lovely to see you today.
0: Yeah, you too. Um, thanks so much for making some time to to come on the show and, and share your story. I'm I'm really excited to sort of chat to you and and get to the heart of some of the amazing things you've done.
1: Perfect. Happy to share.
0: Cool. Um, now I, I know we're going to talk a little bit about your business, Alpha Translations, um, which is pretty exciting. Maybe you could just kick off for us and give us a little bit of your background and, and what kind of led to you starting that business.
1: Yes, actually, I would love to. Interestingly enough, it involves somebody in Australia. Ah. So yeah, when, when I was in um, when I was in university and I had just um, I had my my two daughters very young. Um, and I was still in school, and I wanted to start doing translations because my background was half German, half Canadian. My parents moved back and forth between both countries, so I grew up fully bilingual. And as a result of that, I loved languages, and it was my passion. I started translating books in university. Um, And then as I graduated, I was reading a story about a translator in Australia, who had clients in the US. And because of the time difference, she would you know, go to the beach, swim, do all the fun stuff till about three o'clock in the afternoon when her US clients woke up and that's when she would get to work. And I thought that was just such a brilliant concept. And at the time, so I finished university, my, my kids were small, two and three years old, and we were moving, living in Germany, and about to move from Germany to Alberta, Canada, which is an eight hour time difference, Alberta, Canada being eight hours behind Germany. So translations are always urgent and always an afterthought. So that Australian story really inspired me to say, hey, I had a couple of clients, and I said, you know, look, I know you love working with me. I'm going to make this even easier for you. This is 1993. <laughs> and let's yep. hear them look. There is this amazing invention. It's called a fax machine. So you can just, right? For, for those of your listeners who remember what that even is.
0: Yeah, my kids would be saying, what is that?
1: What is that? It was thermal paper fax on a roll. Yeah. And you have to like straighten it out and cut it and all of that fun stuff. But it was revolutionary, and so this was 1993, and I said, look, you can you can still use me as your translator, and actually it's even better, because at five o'clock your time, when you're about to go home, you fax me your translations. It's 9 a.m. I have all day. You'll get better quality. I'm awake. I'm not sleepy. You'll have it the next morning. And yeah. people just loved it. My clients loved it. So off we went with my two children, my husband. And set up shop here in Canada and started doing translations for large companies. And cool. uh, we grew from there. It was, you know, my 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 purple cow and uh, nobody was doing what I was doing um, yeah. at the speed, at the service, at the price, at the convenience. And so that was the start of Alpha Translations.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. So uh, how old were you at this point in time?
1: Well, I don't know. Are your viewers going to do do the math here? I, mean, uh, <laughs> oh, I should never no, have asked I? Was,
0: that, should I? You were I'm, just I'm out of college, were you? Is it? <laughs> I'm, I'm
1: joking. No, I had my kids when I was twelve. I, no, um, I, no, 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 no. I was. Um, I think I was twenty five or twenty six at the point. I, at yeah, 25,
0: cool, 25. yeah, cool, cool. I mean, that's that's you know that's a a relatively young age and getting out there and doing your own thing. So that's um that's that's exciting and, and and I'm I'm fascinated with this this. The whole translation piece, because one of the things I've found when I've spoken to people who who do do translations is they've told me they've talked to me a lot about the differences between you know kind of regular social language versus having to write for business and law and things like that. And I, I mean, can you share a bit of that? I mean, is that is, is that did you find the same thing? Is it what's it like?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so while I started translating books in university because. I loved languages and I studied um, in Germany, I studied languages, um, political science, and law. So kind of both on that, you know, spectrum. And so because I had my law studies, I didn't graduate as a lawyer. I, I realized after eight semesters it wasn't for me. Uh, but what I did have was the understanding of how it worked and how to express myself in a legal um, environment. So yeah. I, I just happened to start working for a large car manufacturer in Europe. And I mentioned that, you know, my my background. So they started sending me all the legal translations as well as the, the business translations. So it kind of evolved naturally. And, you know, as I eventually grew the business and, and off-boarded myself from translating, which is a whole other fascinating story. Mm. <laughs> um, it It became more and more specialized in legal translation and it is definitely a whole different ball game, right it is it is really the responsibility the the legal lingo, the legal language, but also understanding the lawyers, understanding your clients, their lives like the pressures that they have are much different and and understanding what's at stake yeah. you know some of these are you know, hundred million more dollar deals. Um, confidentiality, publicly traded companies. It's it's critical. It's very different from just translating socially.
0: Yeah, yeah, and no, it's it's interesting. And I guess if there's ever an area where you need to be very precise with your language, it's it's the law, right? <laughs> so, so what so you mentioned, you had a, a large auto company. Was there any kind of trend in the sort of industries or backgrounds or styles of companies you worked with, or was it kind of just really broad?
1: Well. I guess what you focus on expands, right? Yes. So because I had an in with the automotive company, because at that time my husband worked there, Um, it just kind of went along from there. But because I had such a unique service that really hardly anybody in Germany offered at the time, I just got referred. And so I logically then got deferred to other automotive companies. So, you know, at the end of the day, we worked with all the big ones. Um, But then something interesting happened is as I got more into working with different companies, they would basically get me to work with their legal departments. The legal departments would then work with outside law firms. And so the outside law firms would say, Wow, you guys provide really fantastic translations. It really helps our lawyers. Where are you getting them done? And then they said it was alpha translation. So that's how we got into the law firm and by law firms. And by the time I sold, we were working for, I think, close to 60 of the top 100 global law firms.
0: Wow. Okay. That's great. That's great and and so, how did you how do you engage these guys? I mean it starts off with a project or two, but do you it was it just like was there enough work that it was just ongoing and flowing what what was your model I guess is what i'm what I'm trying to get to
1: yeah, interesting. so at the beginning, yes we had law firms and and you know we had other companies too. we got recommended and it flowed and then eventually um we added some salespeople, so it wasn't just me, although Wonderful. I did enjoy. Flying from Canada to Germany and you know going back to where I grew up and and you know selling and and um, visiting customers and growing the business, it was one of my favorite things to do and and it's what I ended up doing the most of throughout my career. But the model was just what I had was not that available, and um, being able to deliver it at a reliable um, as a reliable service because you had to be on time. Deals would fall through if things were not on time.
0: Yep. And
1: and we really got referred. So at the beginning, to get back to your question, we grew by referrals. I yeah. I was I was like under 30 years old. I didn't know how to build a sales force. I didn't know how to build a business. I just yeah. did it. Right. Yep. So I kind of learned by doing. And then eventually we added salespeople and and well, first, we added translators because that was the first thing I needed to stop doing
0: so so when 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 did you hire your first translator how far how far into the business were you at that point?
1: Do we have time for a story
0: ah, yes, of course,
1: okay, so I imagine this is about nineteen ninety five mm-hmm. no it's it's about nineteen ninety six and I'm coming down in the morning to start my work. I grab my coffee. I look into my office and there is the entire floor covered with rolls and rolls of thermal fax paper. Wow! And I'm looking at this and I should be so happy. All of the <laughs> hard work that I've put in is just really paying off. Business is literally rolling in. Yeah. And instead of being really excited, my heart just sinks. Because I know this is another 20-hour day. Yes. I'm translating this. I know this is another day where my husband puts the kids to bed. I know this is another day where I don't get to see them and play with them. And I'm frustrated. But I've started this. The business needs me. Without me, there is no business. So I got to hustle through. Mm -hmm. And when I finally finish, it's 2 a.m. I got to print everything out, fax it back. You know, wait for the send confirmation because nothing was instant before yes. I go to bed. And so I go and I check and I check my messages. Okay, I listen to the answering machine and it goes, beep, hi, this is Cynthia, your nail tech. This is the third appointment you've missed this month. If you want to keep having, you know, an appointment with us, you will need to provide a credit card or find a different service oh yep <laughs> next message beep hi this is dr Schultz's office you missed your checkup today please be ad- advised that we have a wait list oh my god yeah. i <laughs> do not remember any of it because i was just heads down in work the last yeah. message my friend hey babe it's cindy we were supposed to meet for coffee i haven't seen you in two months i hope you're okay mm. And I just broke down. I just started crying. I'm like, I'm getting fired from my own life. <laughs>
0: that's <Nothing's laughs> happening. Yeah. And
1: so I went upstairs and looked at my girls, and they're sleeping and just peacefully. And I missed it again. And and that's when I decided, it's like, hey, I can't go on like this. I love my business, but I don't want to work twenty-hour days. I love my girls, but I don't want to be a stay-at-home mom. And I just said, why can't I have both? I mm. deserve to have both. My kids deserve for me to have both. And I don't want them to fire me from their lives when they grow up. For sure. So that's when everything shifted. I started hiring translators. I started offboarding myself from being a translator. It was a process. But, you know, within a couple of months, I, I went from feeling frustrated, anxious, and stuck to feeling... Happy, free, and and fearless to grow my business. I went from not having time with my kids to playing with them every night.
0: Yeah, it was nice. Amazing. Yeah, when you started hiring people, how did you feel about that? Because I, I, I mean, obviously, you know, in hindsight, you got freedom, you got all these wonderful things. But yeah. I've, you know, you speak to a lot of business owners out there who their concern is that hey, if I suddenly start hiring people. I'm going to be paying all these people so much money. There's not much margin left. How much am I still going to be able to earn? Am I going, you know, so there's this. And, and, and of course, there's a whole bunch of other potential yeah. issues that come with hiring people, right? So uh, talk to me, talk to me about that. You know, did you, what was your experience like?
1: Well, I did the math. I knew that if I worked, you know, even 20 hours, first of all, that wasn't sustainable. But yeah. even if I worked 10 hours a day, I knew how, mu- how much I could make a month and a year. And it was, you know, I didn't want to trade my time for money. That's not why, why I started the business. That's not why most entrepreneurs start the business. Yet that somehow ends up what ends up, you know, the norm. And it ends up that's what people do. So I did the math. I knew, okay, if I can do this, the money's mine, you know, minus a little bit of overhead. But if I hire translators, I can make 10, 20, 100 times as much. And yep. even if I give up half of my margin, that's still fifty times more than I'm making now, and I'm not sitting at my desk getting fired for my life.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So it was a no-brainer for me.
0: Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And um, and so, how long did you you started the company? How long did you run it for?
1: I ran it for twenty five years.
0: Wow. Pretty much exactly. And, yeah. Wow. And and over that period, how how big did it grow too,
1: Okay. So we had. Um, I'm just trying to. I sold to a publicly traded company, so these mm-hmm. numbers are publicly available, so I'm, I'm allowed to share. Um, Good.
0: Yep. <laughs> our, our
1: revenues were around five million ish, mm-hmm. give or take. Um, and I sold it for. And this is Canadian dollars. And then I sold it for eight million in cash, so six million USD.
0: Yeah. Wow. Okay. So so about five million in revenue can you remember offhand sort of what, what did, what, well, actually I was like, going to ask you about EBITDA, but, but what was, how did they come up with the price?
1: Um, well, I had come up with a price. Um, and, and by the way, like I had this, there was this pivotal moment when I just knew, right? So I had built this amazing company um, over 25 years. I I yep. offboarded myself first from translating. Then I offboarded myself from operations. I hired, to your previous question, I hired a CEO really early on. And a lot of my peers and entrepreneurs and mentors and coaches told me I was crazy. It's said, like, what are you doing? You can do all of these things yourself and, and have that money. Why are you paying? And I said, well, you know, I was a single mom at that time with two kids. And I'm like, yeah, but I can always make more money, but I can never make more time. And my kids are going to grow up. So, you know, I'm making enough money. And this will get an opportunity for the business to grow, which is what we did. Yep. So I remember this pivotal moment. I off-boarded myself. I was living the life of my dreams. like I had time with the girls. I was doing sales. I was doing strategy. All the things that I loved. And it was one day in July 2018. And GDPR in Germany was a pain in my side or in Europe. But most of our clients were in Germany. Yep. Machine learning, AI, Google Translate, all of those things were requiring massive investment to stay competitive. And it was after 25 years and I was like, I'm going to get pulled back in big time and I'm going to get pulled back in financially. I need to make some massive investments um, to stay competitive. And and I just, I didn't have the energy to do it. Like I just dreaded it. I I went back to feeling stuck, anxious and frustrated. (laughs) And I didn't want to like I built this beautiful life, and and I remembered the next morning when I when I got up, and and I remember talking to a peer who had sold his business. So you know, talking about talking to people who have done it is one of the most valuable things in the world. And I remember asking him, you know, how do you know that it's time? And and he said, Michelle, when you get up and you dread going to the office, you'll know. Yeah. When you look yourself in the mirror and, and feel drained and, and don't have the energy, you'll know. When you really listen to yourself, you'll know. And I knew. And, and that's when I made the decision. And so I went out and I found a broker mm-hmm. within the industry. Um, I, didn't, I didn't engage a traditional investment banker or business broker. Um, just because I wanted to see. I had lots of people who were connected. I knew there was a lot of acquisition going on in our industry which you know is is true for some industries and 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 not for others but I knew that was a great asset because there was so much consolidation going on and so we put the um the memorandum out in August got an offer in October and the deal closed in January so all within 5 Yeah months.
0: okay. Yeah right. Okay and that's and that's a that's a good timeframe I mean it's you know, I often get asked how long transactions take, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, my usual response is look, six to nine months is fairly typical. You know, it can take longer, it can take shorter. You know, we've, we've done business sales in sort of a couple of months, but it's not the norm. And so I think, I think people going into that kind of process often underestimate what's involved in actually selling and finding the right buyer and negotiating the right deal and even due diligence, how long that can take. Oh. So,
1: yeah, due <laughs> diligence is a whole other story, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so the buyer were they the were they the first offer that you got?
1: No, I had a couple of other offers, um, but I I I really wanted to sell to them. I yeah. knew the industry; they were one of my one of the favorite companies. And and you know what was really important for me when I was so frustrated, I I knew that it needed a bigger player. To create the systems to invest in the AI to more easily get over all the the privacy legislation from a cost and and infrastructure and and process perspective. But mainly, it was the race for the best technology that I felt I would have a really hard chance winning if I stayed on my own. And so they came in, they were a publicly traded competitor. Um, they were the one I wanted to sell to when I thought about it, when I talked to my broker first, who would you want to sell to? They were my number one. And when their offer came, I was clear I didn't want an earnout. I didn't want to be part of the company. I just wanted yep. to walk away, and that's what they wanted too.
0: Yeah. Well, so so talk to me a little bit about your ideal buyer. You know, what kind of was going through your head there? What, What, what were some of the factors that made you think they're the right candidate?
1: Okay. Well, one, I company culture was really important to me. So yeah. what I had built and set up, I had, I had removed myself from the business, which, by the way, allowed me to sell at a premium. Yeah. Um, even though we didn't own IP, even though we didn't have subscription, I know you asked that before. We we did try and implement that. It was it was quite difficult, just the way our clients were structured um it's easier when you have like a, a a corporate structure to do that with law firms it's hard um, because they're often very decentralized yeah um, and i'm sure that's probably the case for a lot of your 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 viewers as well um so we didn't have ip we didn't have subscriptions we we didn't have you know any anything that would really tie the customers to us except that you know our our, our top 80% like our our top 20% of customers which it's always true, brought in 80% of revenue, yeah. um, ha- had been with us for almost two decades. And yes, we yeah. had new ones, but the retention rate was really high. And, and you know, it was because of the service we provided, because of the expertise we had, and and because I made a strategic decision at one point to say, we are going to focus on law firms and, and not go any after any other clients. So that really created a niche for us being very clear where we fit. And I was not involved. I didn't own any relationships with the clients. I, I didn't, you know, go out prospecting. Yes. I would go visit our longstanding clients, but that was almost more like a personal visit. Yeah. Right. So everything ran without me.
0: Yep. That's fantastic. And, and, you know, it's, uh, could just put you up here now to talk to all my clients and say, see, it's not just me saying this, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, you've run a business for 25 years. Um, There must have been some employees that have been with you for a fairly long time, and you must have got pretty close to some of these people, I imagine. Yeah. How did you feel about that? Did you talk to any of the employees when you were getting ready to sell or was that part of the thinking as you were considering buyers?
1: Yeah, that was um that was really, really hard. It was really hard. Yeah. Because we were such a close-knit team, but we were also global. So we had project managers working from home all over the world in different countries in different time zones and different cultures. Um so the team in the actual office was quite small. So that was an advantage in keeping it quiet. Um, however, of course, so my COO who really worked as my right hand and supported me in everything I did and and really loved the company. And and our company culture was open. It was open book policy. Everybody knew revenue, profit, goals, KPIs. We shared all of that with everybody. So keeping something away from people was incredibly difficult, Um, especially from our office manager, the EA, the people in the office. Um, I did tell my COO early on because obviously I needed her, um, but then with all the work that due diligence entails, we had to tell other people in the office, and and, and it, you know, obviously we didn't know if the deal was going to go through. Of course, we hoped it would. You know, I talked to other entrepreneurs. You know, don't rock the boat too much. You know, people get worried. You don't want people to leave, and and all of those things. So I was that was probably the hardest thing to yeah. do. To the point where um, the Christmas party that year, 2018, we, nobody wanted to have it. Like the people who knew didn't want to have it because they didn't want yeah. to be in the same room with the people who didn't know. And yeah. then I was forcing them to lie,
0: which yeah, was really too awful.
1: awful. So we just didn't have it that year. We said, we'll do it in January, which, you know, then we had the, the sale uh, celebration and people understood why.
0: Yeah, okay. Okay. And how did people take it in general?
1: I think they took it well. Um like I was it was really important for me to sell to a company that where I liked the culture. Right? There's there's some companies you know they're going to tear it apart and and do this and 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 this company in particular had a really fantastic track record. Um people who had been acquired by them um said they were fair the transaction, the offer working with them everything was fair and above board cool. I, and so I I was I could believe when they said you know we're not gonna tear everything I mean obviously over the course of time things changed but it was it was really great and then I I believe you know a lot of people are still with the company and and um so yeah that made me feel really good but yeah it was it was really tough
0: yeah I can imagine uh, I've we've sold professional services companies, and, um, and I've found in most cases there's usually one, two, half a dozen people that are really, really important to the business, particularly when the owner has worked their way out of the operations.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and so a couple of the, you know, a lot of the deals that we've done in that space have had a contingency, a condition precedent sort of thing where the key people had to sign new contracts. It was basically the whole deal was contingent on these people have to come. Um, did mm-hmm. you have anything like that with your COO or anyone else?
1: I'm not sure if I can comment on that.
0: Yeah, no, that's fair enough. No, sorry. And I don't mean to drill into yeah. things that, no, no, are, that that's are confidential. Totally but I just can't yeah. share
1: like, those details of the deal.
0: No, no, fair enough. Fair enough. It's always interesting because I, I, we had a, a transaction um, just recently where um, the owners were great at building themselves out of the business and to the point where they could – Prove to a buyer that they, even though it was a people business, they didn't need them hanging around. They didn't actually, shouldn't want them hanging around, and that the next tier of leadership were the ones running it. And so, um, and so, that, and that enabled them to walk away without an earnout. <laughs> right. But but we had to just the last sort of sticking point was just let's get these three people with their contract in their hand and make sure they've signed. And the guy said, "Look, we're all done. We're doing this deal." But they just have to sign those employment contracts before we finish. So yeah, it's um yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah it's, it's you, you sort and of shift totally a little bit sense. of yeah, yeah. You sort of shift the dependency a little bit from yourself onto those people, which I think can be a little bit nerve-wracking for some people, but it's look, it's essential, right? You gotta get yourself out because nobody wants to do a three year and out.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you know, the relationship with the with the acquisition, with the um acquiring company was was really such in that they were transparent as well in what they were doing, so yep. you know it was just a good fit, and we kind of had an understanding of how how it would flow, and my team was on board, and their team was on board. So let me yeah. just answer it that way.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. That's great, and it's so it's so important to have a you know a counterpart, the people on the other side of the table that yeah. you feel you can work with, and that, that are reasonable and are considerate of each other's needs. So it's you know. <laughs> People who've heard this show a few times would probably be bored with me saying this, but, you know, like getting deals done is actually quite hard. It's, you know, you need willing buyers, willing sellers coming together and developing a lot of trust in a very short period of time. And so it, um, there's always a few things that can derail that. But um,
1: Especially when it's a competitor. It makes it even harder. Yeah,
0: yeah. And if the yeah. deal
1: doesn't go through. Now, you know, like you're you're going to leave the client list to to last like we did that. They obviously want to talk to our clients and well like okay, well, you know, that's going to be the last thing you're going to do.
0: Yeah, and definitely, um,
1: you know, so it's um you, you kind of got to open that kimono bit by bit, by bit. So you know, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, standing there stark naked
0: (laughs) (laughs) and wondering why everyone else in the room is dressed (laughs) right
1: exactly (laughs) (laughs) oh
0: no that's funny um i'd I'd love to come back to um and um the the valuation the price the final sort of transaction and settlement and and only of course what you can talk about but I'm, i'm curious as to um the methodology. How did you guys come up with a number? Did you have a number coming into it and an idea of methodology? Were your expectations met? Was it different? Well, how, how did that all look?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Simon. Yes, I did have a number coming into it, and I, I had a very clear: if I can't get this, then I'm not selling. Yep. And so I had that clear line in the sand. Um, I had an ideal number, and I had a this would be really amazing if this could happen number but it yeah. probably um, So so your so.
0: minimum expectation number your your you know oh hey this would be a good number and then you have yeah. the you know the blue sky this would be a, a brilliant number
1: <laughs> Yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. so the cool. the number that that we we ended up with was kind of in between my ideal number and the oh this is brilliant number so Excellent and I, I, yeah, and and I I know from the due diligence process, I know that it is attributed to really three things. One is that I had off boarded myself from the business. Two that you know the business in itself really ran not just without me, but I had systems and processes in place that were logical. That it wasn't just because because back to your other question, you want the key employees to sign. The reason companies want that is mainly because they're not that convinced that your processes are that stable. If you have really stable processes and, and, you know, the repeat clients and things just kind of work, then, okay, you know, you hope the key employees don't leave. But if they do. The processes are still there, right? So so that was the other thing that got me a premium. I, I, I was away. Um, and we had clients that, you know, even though we didn't have subscriptions, had year-long recurring revenue.
0: Yeah, yeah. So lots and lots of repeat business. So so when you came up with your number, was it a number that you just kind of went, hey, I know this number would suit my lifestyle? Or did you have some sort of bit of science behind it? Was there a formula oh, yeah. you were using? or?
1: Yeah yeah of course so we did a lot of research in the industry and and you know looking at because as i'd mentioned there's so much there was, still is actually uh, so much consolidation going on in the in the translation oh. industry i mean at the time that i sold think about this at the time that i sold there was not a single billion dollar player in the entire language translation industry not wow. one so Now there is, and it's actually the company that I sold to, which is really pretty cool. Yeah. But there was not. So, so much consolidation going on. So I looked at at other deals. I looked at deals that, you know, the company that acquired me did earlier. I looked at what other numbers were happening in the industry. I looked at how do I compare to those companies being bought? Um, I mean there was a couple that, you know, a couple of outliers that were getting 20% EBITDA or 20 times EBITDA. Wow. But they had IP, they had software, they had, you know, a product that, of course, they could grow, so it was a different story. So for me to get, um, I think it was almost eight, seven to eight times um, was, That's
0: EBITDA, was was it?
1: It was eight times EBITDA, close to eight times EBITDA. Wow. Was above um market and, and i think it is in in you know most industries and, and yeah
0: indeed indeed yeah look i mean we we see uh, a lot of transactions out there and it's you know look i think in anybody's language eight times EBITDA is pretty good <laughs> yeah so congratulations on that that's fantastic thanks so you you no earnout? no uh there's no did they ask you to just sort of do some sort of transition hang around a little bit make everyone happy yeah.
1: Yeah. They asked me would I be willing to stay for three months, but I didn't have to. But would I be willing to? And I said, sure, no problem. And uh, they paid me for three months and and you know, we kind of worked together for a little while, which was great. And and then we each went our own way.
0: Yeah, cool. And so so what are you doing these days? I mean you've you've had this amazing sale. Did you did you take a holiday, buy a trophy? Was there any kind of period where you just said, right, I'm going to have some me time now or what What, what did that look like?
1: <laughs> it's funny. I, I had had 20 years of me time. I, yeah, I traveled yeah. six months of the year because I off-boarded myself, right? I. I, I had, I was already living the life of my dreams. So it was almost the opposite. It was weird. Yes, I traveled and, you know, took some time off and really happy not to deal with GDPR and, or GDPR. <laughs> See, I don't even remember what it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, it <out. laughs> uh, like, yeah. And, and so that was great. Uh, we traveled, of course. Um, but it was like, okay, so, so now I have all this money. But it didn't really mean anything to me, if that makes sense. Like I yeah. didn't grow up with a lot of money. Like I worked for all of it, built all of it from scratch, and and so I really had no concept what that even meant. I mean, yes, paid, paid all the taxes, and you know, then of course, you know, you have, you're and not not left with eight million dollars. Let me just put it this way, but um, you're still left with a substantial amount of money, and it's like. It didn't mean anything to me. Yes, I could do the math. Okay. If I invested this way, I can grow to this or I can get X amount of cash flow, all of it. But I remember one night sitting on the couch with with my boyfriend and we're looking for movies and I'm on Netflix and, and, and he goes to, um, whatever iTunes and, and it's like six 99. And I'm like, is there nothing free? Why are we spending $6.99 on renting a movie? And he's like, me? <laughs> and yeah that's, how, yeah, that's how terrified I was of spending a penny of the money that I had worked 25 yeah. years for. And and so, you know, I talked to a lot of other entrepreneurs who have sold and they're like, oh yeah, and the freedom, and it was amazing. And finally I could breathe. And I'm like, I can't breathe. I don't have any money. And they're like, <laughs> <laughs> So it yeah. was that, that cash flow transition that was difficult for me and and I needed to wrap my brain around it, which, you know, now three years later, we're, we're all good. Um, so then I started writing my book, which I had wanted to do. One of the things that I I thought about when I decided I'm going to sell, is like, okay, what am I going to do? Right? I'm still young. I'm not going Don't to sit purpose. around doing nothing. I'm yep. an entrepreneur. Um, what am I going to do? And I I knew I wanted to write my book. And I wanted to do. I wanted to coach other entrepreneurs to Ooh. live their best life and and you know offboard themselves from their business so they too could have what I had. Yeah. And so I started writing my book. I uh, became sort of certif- a certified executive coach. Mm-hmm. And um, so what I'm doing now is I am coaching very few select clients because I still want to be semi-retired and I don't want to work full time. I also Fair don't enough. want to like build a big organization again, yeah. um, but I'm I'm scaling it. I'm I'm doing some master classes basically on that subject of how do you get out, stay out, and create more value in your business than you had ever before. So that's yeah. what my focus is now, and I'm just loving it. I'm doing more speaking, yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm having a great time.
0: That's brilliant. That's brilliant. You know, it's it's the probably one of the most common issues I see, and you clearly see as well. But um, in in that business owners just feel trapped, you know, yeah. not knowing how to get out. And I know anybody who's listening to this episode will be will be swearing at me, saying, "Simon, ask Michelle more tips on how I get out of my business." So <laughs> I don't know. Well, if you've got a couple of tips to share with the audience today, but that would that would be awesome if you do.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I have a lot of tips, um, and and actually, I, I'm very happy to um, do a free session for anybody who wants to do a free session and show them to roadmap roadmap to having it all. Um, cool. I'm sure you'll you'll put my email address in at the end. But um,
0: absolutely, well, we'll put up all all your links. Are you, and and while, just while we're asking that before we get to your tips, I mean, what, just maybe share with us what are the best ways for people to get in contact with you.
1: Okay. Best way to get in contact with me is michelle at michellehecken.com. That's Michelle with one L, as you can see on the screen. So just michellehecken.com is my website or michelle at michellehecken.com. Super easy. Cool.
0: And is it okay if people reach out to you on LinkedIn? Absolutely. Yep. Great.
1: LinkedIn, also Michelle Hecken. Yeah, same, same. same. I, I try and keep it simple. (laughs)
0: <laughs> brilliant no absolutely absolutely and as i have seen say, keep saying on this show please if you reach out to michelle on linkedin or otherwise maybe just put a little note in there saying you heard her on the buy grow sell podcast at least you'll have a little context as to why you're reaching out or contacting and uh and and um you know as michelle's already said i'm sure she'll book some time with you but um michelle a couple of tips for those people who've come with us all the way through the show would be great
1: you know, it happens to me all the time as I'm speaking and and I do podcasts and events and I talk to entrepreneurs, just like your listeners. and And the question I hear the most is, Michelle, can you help me create more value in my business and 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 still live the life of my dreams without burning out? And the answer is yes. And it really comes down to three simple, well, simple things.
0: <laughs> yeah. One, simple in like, concept. <laughs>
1: Simple in concept. Um, so yeah, one of one of actually one one lady came to me after a session, and she booked the free session, and and we started on a roadmap. And what we started with is really identifying from an offboarding perspective, identifying all of her responsibilities, the value those responsibilities create for the company, and surprisingly the things that she loved doing the most where she spent most of her time were not necessarily the ones that created the most value so shifting that paradigm and working around what should i really be focusing on because it's one thing to offboard yourself but if you're just offboarding the stuff that you don't like doing um you know you're not being really purposeful about it so i would say number 1 is you know yes remove yourself offboard yourself from the business but do it properly and with purpose and with value creation in mind, because that's what's going to get you the bigger multiple for your business at the end of the day. The second thing, and it kind of goes hand in hand, is empower your people. Off-board responsibilities, not tasks. Because then when you sell and your team is still there, the buyer will also be less worried about the performance of the team because the team owns the responsibilities—not you, not your CEO, everybody in the team—and in order to do that, you've got to be transparent with your company to empower the people, and and that is, I think, really, really critical um, in in offboarding yourself. And 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 you know, people say, "Oh, I got to work on my business." We, we all drink the Kool Aid, right? You got to work on your business, not in your business, and it's true, hundred percent. But People don't know how. And what happens when they try and and work on their business is that they start delegating a bunch of tasks. And that feels good because you can get stuff off your plate. But what doesn't feel good is while your plate is empty, your head is full and heavy. Oh my God, okay, when, when was that due? When was she, oh my goodness, I hope this is on time, right? So you delegate more and more to get more off your plate, but you get busier and busier. And so the key to really working on your business is offboarding responsibilities and not tasks. So stop delegating would be yeah. those would be my two things.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. Michelle, thank you. Um I you know, I think I you you I, even I sit here going, Yes, geez, I'm guilty of that and I've done this. So it's you know, I think we could all kind of look at ourselves and, and recognize some of those behaviors. So that is awesome. Look, I think we're probably out of time today, but I'm I'm so very very grateful for you coming on the show and and sharing your story, Michelle, and these wonderful tips. I know our listeners will get so much out of it. So thank you very much for making the time.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And and let me just leave you with this. Okay. Picture a day when you have offboarded yourself from your company in a way that you're free. Picture a day where your acqu- your buyer says to you, the transaction is closed. We've wired the funds into your account. Picture a day where you have the freedom and the means to live the life that you truly dream of. I'll leave you with that.
0: That's a big dream. All right. Michelle, thanks again for coming on the show. It's been a, been a great time and I really appreciate it.
1: You're more than welcome. It was my absolute pleasure, Simon. Thank you so much.
0: The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder Questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximise the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximise company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bernard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.